Testing kits are hard to come by, hospitalizations are at record levels, schools are facing new mask mandates, and workplaces everywhere are dealing with staffing shortages because of sick employees. Welcome to And Another Thing, Derek Kennedy is out today. I'm Maya Schwader. Coming up, we'll explore how the highly contagious Omicron variant of COVID-19 is impacting daily life. The Supreme Court today blocked the Biden administration's rule that would have required larger businesses to ensure that workers either receive the COVID vaccine or wear masks and get tested on a weekly basis. The court, however, kept in place a separate mandate requiring vaccinations for an estimated 20 million healthcare workers. This comes as hospitalizations in Connecticut have more than tripled in the past four weeks, and Massachusetts is dealing with its own bed crunch, with hospitalizations now topping 3,000. Dr. Andrew Artenstein is an infectious disease specialist and the incident commander of the COVID-19 response at Bay State Health. He tells us what frontline healthcare workers are facing right now. It's significantly more transmissible, more communicable than previous variants, and it is probably on a case-by-case level less severe in general, but because the numbers are so explosive of cases, the absolute numbers of sick people are much higher, much higher, like three or four times higher than they were during the Delta surge. The CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, said that it seems like people who are getting sickest are those with multiple comorbidities right now. What types of people are being admitted to the hospital? Is, Is it all sorts, or is it people who were already, unfortunately, pretty unhealthy? The vast majority of people who are in our hospital with COVID infection, it's about 75 to 80 percent of them are, are unvaccinated of the sick patients. Those people, it tends to uh, cause severe illness in everybody, whether you're previously healthy 38-year-old or a, uh, you know, a morbidly obese diabetic. Now, obviously, like with anything, the more medical problems you have, the more likely you are to have uh, a severe COVID infection. That goes for vaccinated and unvaccinated. So we're seeing all kinds who are unvaccinated. Now, the vaccinated people who end up with severe COVID tend to have, first of all, they're very uncommon. And second of all, they tend to have other medical comorbidities, including obesity, including diabetes, uh, heart, lung, other such illnesses. I want to back up for a moment and talk about just what the scene looks like at the hospital for a moment. You said that you're seeing yeah. sort of all, all sorts. There are you know, mostly unvaccinated, still some vaccinated people who have to come in. Yeah. What, what is it like on the floor right now? Well, let me put it to you this way. When we were in our, you know, Bay State Health, is, I, I think you know well, we're, the, we're about a thousand beds, our whole system. Almost three quarters of those beds are at Bay State Medical Center, which is our tertiary care academic medical center in Springfield. At our peaks in the first wave, which peaked in April of 2020, and the second wave, which peaked about a year ago in January uh, of 21, we were at about 180 patients hospitalized in our system. And right now we've exceeded 300. We had 309 yesterday. We're at about 300. And so that's, you know, 70% higher level than our peak during the first two waves. And we don't even know whether we've reached the peak yet. It's not clear. All that said, we are able to manage that level of illness. And plus, we're filled with lots of other patients. So it's not just COVID patients. We have all the usual 
people that need hospitalization, people with heart disease, lung disease, cancer, emergency surgeries, trauma, you know, all sorts of things like that, that they haven't stopped coming. So we're full to the brim at all our hospitals, both with COVID and with non-COVID, and we're managing. We're stretched thin. Our, our troops are exhausted after two years of fighting a global biological disaster because they all remember healthcare workers are people too. They all are, live in the communities they serve. So they have families, they have friends, they have loved ones. You know, we all have, we're all human beings. So they, you know, they have all those issues. Plus then they come to work and take care of sick people with all these issues. So it's, it's been a tough situation, but we are managing. Uh, no, everyone is getting great care. So I'm proud of 13,000 troops, uh, how they've managed for the last two years. Is it possible with the curves of Omicron that we've seen in other countries, such as, for example, South Africa, where it dropped off fairly quickly, is it possible that this could maybe finally be the variant that kind of fades into the background and allows the world to to come out of its shell, so to speak? That's the $64,000 question. I mean, there's obviously there's some schools of thought that believe that, yes, this could be the case. I would characterize my feeling about this as I'm hopeful, but not convinced. So this is sort of trust, but verify. This is, you know, one of those situations where I think it pays to be very uh, vigilant because this one, there's no question in my mind that, and I'm very thankful for this, that I think we will get some respite, meaning we will begin to see it. It will peak. It will then start to decline and we will get some respite. When I say we, I mean our entire community will get some respite from this. It's just that's the way it is. There are so many people who have now been infected with Omicron that even if the immune immunity is short-lived, and it could be, I mean, right now the thinking is it's going to be on the order of months, not years. Every time I hear people trying to predict what the future will look like with this particular pathogen virus, they get humbled because viruses can humble people. They're small organisms, but they're uh, tricky. And this one has proven particularly tricky in its ability to to sort of shift its shape and, and vary. And I don't know what the future holds. I do know that we will get better therapeutics. They'll come fast and furious, I believe. I also believe we'll get second generation vaccines that may have, you know, broader durability. Uh, this, these vaccines are excellent. But, you know, the virus has, has shown an ability to evade some of them. And so we we're going we're gonna to need some more uh, sort of durable approaches. And I think that's coming. And I think the more time we can get under our belt, the better prepared we'll be if there is another, another wave. Dr. Andrew Artenstein is an infectious disease specialist and the incident commander of COVID-19 response at Bay State Health. Thank you so much. We really appreciate your time and your insights. Thank you. According to government data, all but one county in Connecticut is currently experiencing more than 15 new cases of COVID per 100,000 people every day. In Hartford, Public Health Director Liani Arroyo has the unenviable job of trying to keep the city's residents informed about the latest protocols and also making sure they have the tools they need to fight the virus. It's really hard to anticipate what anything could look like. We saw what was happening in South Africa. We saw what was 
happening in the UK. And so that gave us some indication of what it could potentially look like. So as we were seeing those spikes happen, it was obviously something that we were quite concerned about and had uh, started putting some, some measures in place, uh, particularly to increase access to testing. That was the biggest thing that we were doing, as well as pushing many more vaccination clinics right before the holidays so that as many families that wanted to and, and felt like this was a time to do it were, would have access to be able to do that. Speaking of testing, how is that going right now? Because we've seen, you know, in New York City, at least, lines around the block, hours long, for people trying to, to get tested, new CVSs around the state, sold out of tests, it seems like. What is the state in Hartford there? Are people able to find it if they need it? Similar to what's happening across the country, uh, at-home tests were hard to come by and are still relatively challenging to come by. And then testing at sites is also challenging. We've had long lines as well. We've seen those long lines play out in the week before the holidays, the week of, and the week after. And so we had worked previous to uh, the holidays to augment what we, we knew would be an increase need for testing. And so we had mobile testing sites set up, two sites, through the end of the month, and that started right after the holidays. And we also had placed an order for at-home test kits in December, and we were lucky enough to get them uh, and to have them arrive right after the Christmas holiday. And so we were able to get those out for, for New Year so that individuals who wanted to test before going out or individuals who were starting to feel symptomatic or we're feeling symptomatic after the New Year's holiday to test before going to uh, school or work the first week of January. So we have some things in place that we were trying to do, but the need of still far outweighed what was available. And the Hartford Current was reporting that there are 6,000 testing kits that are being made available to Hartford residents and that those are being distributed to today on Thursday. Was that a long-planned distribution or was that put together because the city saw that there was a necessity to give out these kits? So the kits that we're giving out now are kits that we received from the state allocation that we uh, had been hoping to receive right before the New Year's holiday. And so this is actually our third distribution of at-home testing kits. Our first one was that Thursday, I believe it was December 30th. Then all of last week, we spent uh, working with uh, partners in the community, community organizations, as well as other organizations that work with our city's most vulnerable. And so we did distributions to them, our senior center, senior housing developments, the public housing authority, uh, making sure uh, that those facilities that we know have very vulnerable residents had access. And so now this is our third distribution. Out of curiosity, Has there been an increase in demand for vaccines or has that remained pretty stable? I will say that we've definitely seen more calls about where people can get vaccinated. We did um, host an additional site on Saturday that saw close to 100 individuals come through. So I would say that there's definitely renewed interest and we're seeing more demand at the uh, vaccine sites, from at least particularly at our no appointment sites that we've been uh, working with partners to host. Interesting. Well, what does that tell you about how people are learning about the vaccines? Well, I think it's a couple of things. Individuals who might have been on the fence 
thinking, you know, this is fine. I'm not going to get it. I haven't gotten it yet. I'm going to continue to protect myself are now faced with the reality that we have a variant that's very fast moving, very infectious, and that they'd be better, better off getting vaccinated. I think that's, that's been helpful. We're just given the news reports about how it's affecting children and the increase of children going into the hospitals. There's definitely renewed interest, I believe, from parents of children as well. And so for us, it's we knew that this was for our community going to be a longer process than for most communities, just given the demographics and the makeup of our community. We just sort of doubled down on it when we saw that there was interest. We doubled down on increasing access to um, additional clinics more than the, the sites that we've had previously. And, and in the city of Hartford, we every day there's a way to get vaccinated and usually multiple ways to get vaccinated within the city. So we just added on top of that. Where does Hartford stand on masks right now? We do have a mask mandate. The mask mandate will be in effect at least through the end of January. We uh, generally speaking, I think there's a lot of masking that's already happening within the city. And so we just thought that this was a way to get those that might not have been masking to pick up that mask again and uh, continue to mask. At the end of January, we'll reassess and see where we are with our numbers, our case rates, and then make a decision whether to continue the mask mandate or whether to discontinue it. Has that gone over pretty well, though? Were people okay with going back to wearing masks or was there some resistance? Uh, I've not received much resistance about that. I think individuals understand that it is a measure, is one of multiple mitigation measures. And when you think about there are individuals who cannot work from home, there are individuals who have to be in contact with the public and they don't know if someone's vaccinated or not. They don't know if someone is, you know, keeping other mitigation strategies in public and, and on their own. And so this is a layer of protection uh, for our public facing workers in the city, but also for other public facing workers like our grocery store workers, those that work in, in retail. So for us, we see this as a way to, to help also protect those workers that have helped keep us going through this pandemic. Liani Arroyo is the public health director in Hartford, Connecticut. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Coming up, schools and the challenges they're facing right now. We'll hear from the head of the largest teachers union in Massachusetts, who's not happy with the administration's response to Omicron. Stay with us. You're listening to And Another Thing. Derek Kennedy is out today. I'm Maya Schwader. Tonight, we're learning about the mounting challenges presented by the Omicron variant of COVID-19 and how community leaders are facing these challenges. While short-staffed hospitals struggle with capacity, schools are also facing staffing shortages with high rates of teacher illness. Mary Najimi, the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, tells us how Omicron is affecting the classroom. This very moment in our public schools, Educators, school nurses, and other staff continue to go to superhuman lengths to keep their students safe while keeping our school doors open. But what's going on in our schools is demoralizing and unsustainable. There are too many schools who have staffing shortages, so the schools are piecing together coverage for classes. And in those places, it feels more like triage than true education. And we know meaningful learning is being compromised. So here's what it takes. We actually are calling for a flexible position from the Department of Education 
to count temporary instances of remote learning towards time on learning when it is necessary. Number two, the distribution of reliable and medically appropriate masks for all students and school staff. Number three, a systematic plan for widespread testing in our schools with additional personnel to support the nurses because they're stretched beyond capacity. This week, the Massachusetts Education Commissioner reinstated a mask mandate for public schools, but only through the end of next month, not through the rest of the school year, as teachers want it. Last August, we started advocating for a mask mandate to get us through the fall. We continued come October to advocate to keep it in place because the circumstances were still severe. And we continued again last week to advocate the mask mandate stay in place. Come February, if we still need to mask, we will continue to put pressure on the commissioner to keep that mandate in place. Najimi says teachers also want school districts to have the option to return to remote learning, something Governor Baker is resisting. Every respected public health voice in America says that schools, for the most part, are low transmission operations, that school is not only safe, especially for kids, it's healthy, and the kids need to be in school And the kids need not just the learning that comes from being in school, but the socialization that comes from it as well. And the vast majority of the adults in our K-12 school systems in Massachusetts are vaccinated. The teacher's union chief strongly disagrees with the governor. What we are calling on is not a one-size-fits-all, everybody goes back to remote learning for an entire year. What we are seeing is a flexible position So that local school districts who understand what they have the capacity to do to provide meaningful education and keep kids safe are granted the flexibility to do it. If they need to go remote for a temporary period of time, then they have to be able to do that. And again, this is where the governor fails in his leadership. He is failing to continue to give resources to families in need so that they can sustain their family income and, you know, have food security, have uh, meaningful education, all when we are in the, the peak of the Omicron. Najimi joins Democratic lawmakers in harsh criticism of the governor's response to the pandemic. We have a governor who's arrogant and disdain for the expertise of the educators is creating a public health crisis and undermining our common goal to keep our schools open, safe, and provide meaningful education. Educators do not feel safe. It's not just educators. What are educators are telling us that our kids are struggling physically, emotionally, and academically, and our educators are feeling demoralized. We need a governor to stop putting public relations in front of public health. He has never created a systematic universal plan to support public schools. He just announced that he has 26 million new tests coming into the state, and many of those will be designated towards public education. It's not good enough to do what he always does, which is allocate resources and then leave districts to their own devices to solve the rest of the problems. 
He needs to work with the education unions and the local stakeholders, develop a comprehensive plan to get us through this very moment with Omicron, and then be prepared for February and April when schools return from vacation. That was Massachusetts Teachers Association President Mary Najimi. In addition to staffing issues in schools and hospitals, long-term care providers say there is a severe staffing crisis in Connecticut nursing homes, due in large part to COVID. Connecticut Public Radio's Kay Perkins has our report on that. Healthcare leaders in Connecticut say the staffing shortage in long-term care centers is causing serious problems. This is a war. That's Lawrence Santilli. He's the chair of the Connecticut Association of Healthcare Facilities, the state's largest association of long-term care organizations. He spoke at a meeting of the Nursing Home Financial Advisory Committee, where leaders from across the industry reported problems maintaining healthcare staff. Santilli says the staffing shortage is caused by a combination of low wages, absences due to COVID exposure, and burnout. But he also blames nursing pools. Those are groups of floater nurses who work at healthcare facilities on a temporary basis as needed. He says they're charging exorbitant amounts, which leaves the healthcare facilities unable to hire more workers. We need the pools, so they are then allowed to charge whatever they want. I had one pool charge me $84 an hour for a nurse's aide. This is well above statewide averages. For example, another committee member proposed an hourly rate of $25 an hour for nurses' aides. Matthew Barrett is president of the Association of Healthcare Facilities. He says all this is keeping facilities from returning to full occupancy, although at 78% occupancy, Connecticut is doing better than many other states. We are almost six points higher than the national occupancy average. Still, he says that many nursing homes have had to turn potential residents away. The committee says they will begin a study of nurse wages, including pool nurses, to see if raises need to be instituted. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Kay Perkins. Thanks for being here for another edition of And Another Thing. You can find old episodes of our show on our webpage at nepm.org, or our handle across social media is at AAT on NEPM. And don't forget you can email us at andanotherthing at nepm.org. For the whole team, I'm Maya Schwader. Have a great evening.